Uh, this morning, as you can see up there, we're going to be looking at the book of James. And while James is, is a New Testament book, I think we're going to find that it can be helpful in understanding more deeply uh, what we have encountered in Genesis so far. Almost a year ago, some of you stood around a dead tree and listened to me talk about what a great representation that tree was of who we are apart from Christ. Some of you know I'm talking about the prayer walk that we had out at Billy and Donna's ranch. For those of you who were at the prayer walk, you may remember what that tree looked like. But for those of you who weren't, or for those that were but don't remember, I have a picture of that tree. Now I want you to imagine with me that we're all standing around this tree again. However, instead of listening to me talk about how dead this tree is, I'm passionately describing to you how luscious and green this beautiful tree appears. Instead of trying to find that sliver of shade on that hot afternoon, day, I'm telling you how great it is to have abundant shade in the heat of the day provided by this massive towering tree. Fortunately, though, in this imagination, you are all still grounded in reality and can see that I'm delirious in my interpretation of the tree. You all decide for yourself that I have, in fact, lost my mind. Well, I, I could have stood there that afternoon and insisted that the tree was alive. But the tree's condition would not have changed. You can all see very clearly what the fate of that tree is. It's not bright. The only thing left for this tree is to rot away. Barren, fruitless, and useless is this tree. And no amount of descriptive, convincing words will change that. James gives us a similar scenario. Except James isn't talking about a dead tree and a, a crazy guy in denial. He's talking about you and I. As we work our way through this section of scripture, I want you to remember this tree. And I'd ask that you just empty your minds and focus on God's word. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. It's page 1044 in your pew Bibles in front of you. This is God's word. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. 
Father, may your will be done amongst us this morning. May your Holy Spirit speak to us and convict us through your word. Father, soften our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. Amen. I don't think it's a stretch to say that one of the most controversial and fought-over passages of Scripture is the one we just looked at. Many have used this specific passage as evidence of a faith plus works salvation, and therefore potentially in direct contradiction with other passages of Scripture. Part of the controversy associated with this book falls on the issue of authorship, actually. Some believe that this book was written by an unknown person who had the pen name James. Others found it difficult to nail down an exact author because James was a common Jewish name. All that to say, there is widespread agreement that this book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Not to be confused with James, one of the 12 disciples. The disciple James was believed to be martyred before this book was written. So why am I telling you this? It's important to know which James wrote this book because if the correct author is, in fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, then we see this James elsewhere in Scripture, and then we can understand more of his teaching and stature. For example, Acts 15 gives an account of the Apostolic Council meeting to discuss the issue of Gentiles needing to be circumcised to become a Christian or not. This is important information. James is the leader of this council and is represented as agreeing with Paul and Peter on their belief of faith alone for righteousness. Also, Jesus would then have appeared to this James, which is recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 15:7. Again, very important to note, we see this James elsewhere in Scripture. During my time this morning, I not only want to help us utilize and apply James correctly, but I also want to lay out a good starting point to help you interpret difficult texts in your own studies. You're going to hear two rules we need to remember with difficult texts such as this one, two denials regarding what James is not saying, and finally, we'll get to the main message that James is saying. So to start off, we'll quickly look at the rules for interpreting scripture first. So rule number one when encountering difficult texts is that all of scripture is useful. And we find this rule in scripture itself. The call to worship that Billy shared with us this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Paul says that all of scripture will equip us for good works. And this ties in nicely with what James is saying in our text this morning. This rule means that every book accepted as the canon of Scripture, the whole, all the books that make up the Bible, they're meant to be in the Bible. Thus, we treat all the books with the same authority, and we view every word of Scripture as useful. So enough said with number one. Let's look at rule two. Rule two is that we let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is a rule I just learned recently, and what it means is that because all of Scripture is useful, we can use passages found elsewhere to connect the dots, so to speak, on what is being conveyed in the text you're wrestling with. One passage is not inferior to the other, rather they are both at the same level and complementary of each other. When we're reading the Bible and we come across something we don't understand, other scripture passages help us interpret the meaning. So for example, you'll see this in action um, in the next 
topic of the sermon, we'll be looking at how other scripture references help to form a solid consensus of what James wants to convey. One isn't working against the other. Rather, they help interpret each other. So like I said, I hope you see these two roles in action as we work our way through the text this morning. So moving on, moving on to the two denials that I told you that we see in James. And I want to tackle the big elephant in the room first. I know a lot of you are thinking it. That big elephant is, does the question, does James promote works over faith as our means for salvation? In case some of you fall asleep soon, I want you to hear the short answer to that question because it's important. The answer is no. James is not promoting works over faith as our means for salvation. As I just showed you, he was agreeing with Paul and Peter at the Apostolic Council saying that no, works are not needed for faith. You don't have to be circumcised to have faith. James is not promoting works over faith as our means for salvation. And to best explain this, I want to give you the first denial we encounter. The first denial being that James is not presenting a prescription for salvation. The words we see here in James should not be seen as a prescription for salvation, but rather, listen to this, rather a description of what salvation looks like in our lives. In other words, James is not telling us what we must do to be saved. He's telling us what we will do if we are saved. James is estimated to be one of the earlier books written in the New Testament, and his audience is believed to be Jewish Christians. As I just got done emphasizing, James does not go against the rest of Scripture, but rather gives us a sneak peek, if you will, of the written teachings to come of his day, mainly in the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the letters of Paul. I want to look at these two sets of books a little more closely and compare them to James. We're letting Scripture interpret Scripture, remember? First, we look at the Gospels of Jesus compared to James' words on works. An example of Jesus' teaching on works can be found in Matthew 7 or Luke 6. It's the Sermon on the Mount. In both of these chapters, Jesus talks about recognizing false prophets or false teachers by their lack of fruit. Jesus goes on to preach that people who hear his words and do them are like those who have built their houses on solid foundations which cannot be shaken. In John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. He instructs us that if we stay in him, we will avoid being cut off from the vine by the gardener. Jesus is giving a very clear emphasis on the importance of works. Yet we know that there has to be a deeper meaning to what Jesus is saying. We know that Jesus certainly never preached a salvation by works message. James takes the words of Jesus and expands by saying that really the issue is not whether we work or not, but rather between a dead faith and a living faith. I want you to catch that. James is presenting us with the difference between a dead faith and a living faith. We can see the difference in the first part of our text, verses 14 through 19. And verse 17 explicitly makes this clear. Verse 17 says this, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. See, these two different kinds of faith will be determined by works. And that is simply all James is saying. An absence of love means an absence of faith. 
And the presence of loving works means the presence of faith. Dead versus living. And just like the tree I showed you is undoubtedly dead by its physical characteristics, so too are we shown to be dead by our lack of good actions. Just like the tree was barren, fruitless, and useless, so are we if we fail to produce pleasing fruit by a living faith. So strip away all your words and see what's left standing. Is it a living tree with luscious green leaves, or is it more like the tree I showed you with nothing but dry twigs? It really is a tragedy that so many have abused James's words in our text here, when all he's doing for us is interpreting the words of Jesus. James isn't making up a false teaching. He's summarizing Jesus' teaching. The second set of books I want to compare to these verses of James are the letters of Paul. It is here where all the controversy associated with James stems. James's teaching here can be seen by some as a direct contradiction to Paul's preaching of righteousness through faith alone apart from works. And while we look at that, there are a couple clarifying points to remember when we see James and Paul's seemingly different messages. And this is where I want you to remember that first denial. James is not a prescription for salvation, but rather a description of what the salvation looks like in the life of a believer. So the first clarifying point to remember is that Paul and James are preaching in different contexts. That's really big. Paul's message of righteousness through faith alone is for those who doubted that non-Jewish people, such as Gentiles who weren't circumcised, could be saved. James's message is to Jewish Christians who incorrectly started to believe that because they had faith, or what they thought was faith, God's law was no longer necessary. And we see this in the example of Abraham that both Paul and James speak of. They both use the same person to give a different message. Paul says that Abraham was righteous before he was circumcised because of faith. James says that Abraham was righteous when he offered up Isaac because Abraham had a living faith working in him, thus presenting by his actions a faith that had made him righteous. The actions were pointing to the faith that made him righteous. James and Paul are not in disagreement about how we are made righteous. It's quite the opposite. They are using the same doctrine on salvation, which they both agree on, don't forget that, to address different settings. The second clarifying point to remember when comparing James to Paul is that even with Paul's heavy emphasis on righteousness by faith alone, he still talks about bearing fruit. Paul makes a strong case that Christians should not have lives that are absent of good fruit, much like James is saying. You can see the list already on the screen of some of Paul's references regarding fruitful lives. But I want to direct our attention to two specific passages from this list. The first one, Romans 6, contains Paul asking a rhetorical question on if we should keep sinning because works have no impact on our salvation. Now, Paul has a couple of paragraphs answering this question. I'm not going to read all that. However, I want to focus on uh, verse 13, which states, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Does that sound like James? 
Paul is saying that those with a living faith become instruments of righteousness. Let's look at one more. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, Paul is saying that we are to do good works in Christ and that God is the one who orchestrates that work in our life. So as you can see through a quick flyover of the New Testament, James is not contradicted, but rather strengthened. It's very easy, though, for us to take James's words and use them as a prescription to salvation. We fall back into the trap of believing we must earn our way to heaven. But if we remember that Jesus, Paul, and James are all complementing each other, we see that faith alone is the prescription to salvation and works are simply the description of that salvation. And we cannot confuse those two distinctions. And here's why. Works as a prescription to salvation is hopeless. Faith as a prescription to salvation is hopeful. James's words free us to stop having anxiety over what we do and don't do. And this brings us to our second denial. The second denial of James is James is not telling us to be a judge. It's tempting to view James as a free pass to judge the works of ourselves and others to determine if we have a living faith or not. However, we know from the rest of Scripture that we are not judges. Paul explains why in Romans 2. He says that if we judge others, we're actually judging ourselves because we make the same mistakes as those we judge. Put another way, we are not to be judges because we are sinners too. The first observation I would like to make about um, this second denial is that if we judge ourselves or others, we are putting ourselves above God and his plan for us. It was very interesting to me as I was looking at this text that James uses the two examples of people with the living faith that we find in verses 20 through 26. So in the first example, we see Abraham offering up his son Isaac to be sacrificed, fully believing in faith that God would raise him from the dead. And then in the second example, we see Rahab hiding some spies in Jericho, thus displaying faith in God. These are two very different acts of faith, yet they are both counted as righteous. And I think James does this on purpose. If we are to judge our actions ourselves, then we would think that we aren't adequately righteous until we do something as big as Abraham. And that simply isn't true. We don't know much about Rahab besides this account and that she was saved from the destruction of Jericho, but we do see that Jesus appears from Rahab's lineage. So you see that both acts, big and seemingly small, were used to bring forth Jesus. God uses us for his purpose, however he sees fit, and we do not judge those acts by him. Verse 22 says that Abraham, and I think we can apply these words to Rahab as well, were both made complete by what they did. One of the commentaries I read said that the proper translation, this was really helpful for me, one of the commentaries I read said that the proper translation here in verse 22 
is more along the lines of faith being brought to its intended goal. We are saved by faith, and I think that is one of the intended goals of faith, absolutely. However, I would argue that another intended goal of faith is to show others the hope we have. This is something we can't judge. It can't be quantified. We simply act out of faith and let God use us for his intended goal. The second observation I want to address is that we forget who saves us when we play judge. Verse 24 says that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That sounds weird, doesn't it? At first glance, this appears to be in direct conflict with all of Scripture. Again, though, we remember that James and the rest of Scripture are not in contradiction. Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in us and Christ only makes us righteous. This alien righteousness, as Martin Luther calls it, will produce faithful works. It's not a question of if. It will produce faithful works. Apart from Christ, we are dead, and our dead faith does not save us. So it is true what James says. Dead faith alone does not save because it is lacking Christ and his good works through us. Living faith alone does save because it is evidence of Christ in us. If we realize that it is Christ who works through us, we realize that James is not commanding us to be a judge, but rather explaining what Christ living through us looks like. He testifies that if Christ is not living through us, then Christ is not present. Like James gave the example, if we have no desire to love our neighbors by doing, to feed them and clothe them, then it is very possible that Christ is not in us. James is promising that that those who live by genuine faith in Christ alone, they will become merely vessels of good works. Someone who doesn't feel obligated to work, but instead just naturally displays the love of Christ to others. Christ in us is what saves us. Christ is the one who works through us. And who are we to judge that? James is not a prescription for salvation, and he is not commanding us to judge. So now finally, let's look at what James is saying. The main message of our text is an urgent warning, and it's very blunt. It's this, only those with a living faith are saved. So why is it urgent, and why is it a warning? Well, it's urgent because either the second coming of Christ comes like a thief in the night, or we die both of which are out of our control and can happen any time. And it's a warning because there is still time, of course, until there isn't. I want to bring our attention back to that tree I showed you at the beginning of the sermon. This is the current state of the tree right now as I speak. A year ago it was standing, right now it's toppled over. And this toppled over tree nicely sums up the urgent warning that James is giving us. No matter how much we talk about this wonderful faith we have, if our actions don't prove the existence of faith, we end up just like this tree. The ending verse, verse 26, makes a statement comparing breath in our lungs. Actually, James uses the word spirit, but it it means breath. Um, And he compares that to works. This is what he says. As the body without the spirit, or breath, 
is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Breath is just the evidence or the animation of life. If there's no breath, if your chest isn't moving up and down, you're dead. So too are works with faith. You can pretend to have faith, but if there are no good works in your life, you're dead. You see, a working faith is a living faith. But always remember that the works were brought to life by the faith, not the other way around. James gives us some very hard and challenging words. We certainly don't read his words and and lose hope in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. And yet we don't become like the audience James is writing to and think that we can have faith while blending into the world around us. Friends of God, the phrase that James uses in verse 23 horribly, horribly stand out in this earth by giving generously to things that have no profit to themselves. They love those who don't love them back. They pray for those who are their enemy. They give up their time to be involved in the body of Christ. They desire to be in God's word. Resist the temptation to believe that James is prescribing a faith by works message. On the other hand, though, don't fool yourself into thinking that just because you believe there is a God, just like the demons, you're going to heaven. Rather, very much hear the words of James and understand that your actions are pointing to a root cause. That cause being either a dead faith or a living faith. In church, there's coming a time when the goats and the sheep will be separated as Jesus preached. There's coming a time when James' urgent warning will become a sealed reality. We must remember, only those with the living faith are saved. To end here, I want to read Martin Luther's words on what this saving faith looks like. This is what Martin Luther says. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Don't be foolish trying to convince others of your faith by your words while the dead tree inside you is very obvious. And don't be foolish trying to work your way into heaven. Christ died so that the dead may live, regardless of what they have done or continue to do. Christ died so that those who have a dead faith can be renewed with a living faith. And Christ died so that all who have faith in him, all who put their trust in him, have a sealed eternity. Do you have a lot of empty words flowing from your mouth? Or are you loving your neighbor by doing? You see, you don't have to work wearily for Jesus. He will work for you. But are you letting him? May we always be people of true faith, letting Christ naturally work through us and in us, showing hope to a hopeless world. Heavenly Father, we are sinners in constant need of your grace. We again and again distort your beautiful gospel message by thinking we could ever earn it. 
Forgive us of our forgetfulness, Father. Help us to bask in the glory of your work on our behalf so that we are always reminded that we don't work to be saved. Thank you for your difficult words you have shown us this morning. We pray that these words challenge us, convict us, and change us, Father. And we pray that you be near to us this week and the weeks ahead as we painfully stick out in this world. Give us the strength and courage to persevere even in the face of mockery that we encounter all too often from this world. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.